John Watson is coming back from Afghanistan. In BBC Sherlock Holmes, John Watson is coming back from (laughs) Afghanistan. And you're like, fuck. The Graveyard of Empires. Welcome to the Skippy and Fanny Show, Torture Cinema. Wolverines! I told you there's only one tagline that fits for this movie, and that's it. That's the obvious one. Yes, correct. That is how this movie is. It's obvious. (laughs) I'm Alex. I'm Sean. And I'm Paul. And on today's show, we'll discuss 1984's, I'm not reading that, war movie, Red Dawn, (laughs) written by John Milius and Kevin Reynolds, also directed by John Milius, and starring Patrick Swayze, Charlie Sheen, Leah Thompson, Jennifer Grey, and C. Thomas Howell. This was, as always, selected by our Patreon supporters, who decided we should watch this even though Armageddon was right there. Come on, people. They light a fire in space. <laughs> but instead, you made me watch this, this shit that was masterminded by General Alexander Haig. <laughs> I, I may have voted for this film. I don't remember. Paul. Oh, Paul. Look, this is once more confirming what I have always known, which is I can predict nothing about our patron supporters because they, they just never choose the film that I think is obvious. I thought Armageddon for sure was going to win. I did not expect that we would be talking about Red Dawn of the list of films that was there. This is (laughs) not the one that I thought was going to even come second. And yet here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we could have talked about Armageddon, but I wouldn't want to miss a thing. (laughs) Oh, sorry. But no, instead, instead we get to watch a movie that doesn't even have its own theme song. It's a shame. Which is very un 80s of it. That's pretty true. Yeah. There should have been a plucky 80s tune before all the paratroopers showed up. Or like, you know, like a 80s hairband anthem or something. Ah, uh, like Anthrax should have done the song. This movie takes itself way too seriously Well, and that. you couldn't have had Anthrax because that's devil worshiper music right there. Oh, yeah. A film mm. this conservative could not have devil worshiper music. So I guess it would have to be like, what? Like, you couldn't have a hair. What hairband is appropriate for conservatives of the 1980s? <sighs> Like, they're all nonconformists. They all are, like, have their lady hair. Like, I mean... Yeah, you're right. I mean, it would... And you couldn't have pop either because the 80s were a very bisexual decade for pop, which is very also unconservative. It would have had to be, like, Christian rock or something, which would have just... Was Christian rock a thing in the 80s? I mean, it, it probably <laughs> existed, but I don't know if it was... Like, Amy Amy Grant wasn't, like, a thing yet. Yeah, I... Well, just just like conserva- the conservatives don't have very many good movies, they don't have a whole lot of good bands, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, like, who's the Morrissey of the 1980s? Because like, <laughs> Jurassic Play wasn't till like, the 90s, so I don't yeah. know. Yeah, so I don't know. Like, uh, look, th- this leads us to the next thing we were going to I have to do in the script, which is about you all leaving us comments. But I honestly want to know, from your perspectives as listeners, who do you think was the conservative-appropriate band that could have done a theme song for red dawn of the 1980s Cause rem- and remember for the specification considering who was involved in the making of this movie it cannot be no pinko commies none no n- none. and n- none of them queers either it has to be like some red blooded americans and toby keith wasn't there yet 
Uh, well, anyway, before we get to drinking, summary, all that stuff, a uh, reminder, we do want to hear from you, skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We're working on a mailbag episode, but we would love to hear your thoughts on this discussion point we just had, because <laughs> it's silly, and that's what this show's about. So, with that in mind, we now need to move to what we're drinking. And so, Paul, I throw it to you first. What beverage are you drinking at this moment? I am, dr- I am drinking the happiest beverage there is. I mean... They don't mention that New York City gets nuked in this. They, they talk about other cities being nuked. But I'm imagining Rendon, New York City probably get nuked. But I'm, I'm drinking the happiest beverage there is straight out of New York City. It is made out of chocolate syrup, seltzer, and half and half. Ooh. Do you know what that's called? Oh, it's a, um, it's an egg cream, right? Yes! Ding, ding, yes! ding! Alex gets it in one. I am drinking an egg cream with real Fox You Bet syrup from New York City. Okay, so what are you drinking, Alex? So I am drinking a Cerveza Salupas, which is a golden ale from Salupas Beer Company, based out of Colorado. This is wonderful because this particular golden ale is um, influenced by the Aguas Frescas. So it's got mango and lemon peel in it, and it honors the brewer's personal experiences in Mexico with Aguas Frescas. And I did this, of course, in honor of how fucking racist this movie was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I'm sorry. What about you, Sean? I don't, honestly, I don't give a Sean, I don't give a shit what you're drinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I didn't have any fireball. And so I was going to try to make something that was like cinnamony, but also bright red to drink and then call it a red dawn, because then that would be themed to this movie. But I don't have that. And so I made something else that is fine, but it, it definitely is missing what I, I think Fireball would have added to this in terms of class. And so this is what I'm calling for now Red Dawn Number 1, which features a citron vodka. It's got Campari. It has a maraschino liqueur and Cointreau and a little bit of grenadine in it. And uh, that's what I'm drinking. And I've made a double because being drunk is the point. All right. All right. So now for the main event, we're going to talk about Red Dawn. I have overruled Sean and asserted that I will do the summary because I do not trust him after things he said off the pod. So (laughs) Red Dawn is a film that I I feel like actually a little background is is worthwhile because initially it was conceived of as a kind of like almost anti-war smaller art house film that then MGM picked it up and particularly... A person on the board of MGM, General Alexander Haig, got really excited about it. If that name isn't familiar to you, um, you should know that he was the chief of staff for Nixon and Ford, and he was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, so that should be I'm in charge that. here, man. Mm-hmm. And he decided that it would be really awesome to bring in a conservative think tank to help figure out how to really, I guess, you know, do a good invasion of America by Russia and really just like conservative this shit up. And we got the movie that we got instead, which is in fact about Russia with Cuba and Nicaragua, question mark, Deciding to invade America, they invade the Western United States, I'm sure we're going to talk about more about this later, and they end up, this is all focused on this fictional town in Colorado that supposedly guards this pass through the Rocky Mountains that's very important. 
more on that later, perhaps, too. <laughs> and so that's why Russia and Nicaragua and Cuba land a bunch of paratroopers in there, and then they just, like, you know, occupy the town and murder a bunch of people, and everything's terrible. And a group of teenagers led by Patrick Swayze escapes them and goes up into the mountains and basically conducts a guerrilla war against these Russians and Nicaraguans and Cubans. And that's pretty much the film. Like, it's a lot of, of kids kind of pretending to be Rambo and blowing up tanks. And at some point there's a U United States pilot that gets shot down that they find. So they find out about the further situation, about how much of the United States has been taken over, which is like half of it. Apparently they've made it into Kansas, but... More on the geography of that later as well. <laughs> and then a bunch of people die and they die gloriously. And then they protect truth, justice in the American way. And it's entirely imperialist propaganda. It's really a lot. So, so, so I'm kind of reminded of the way you described this and how it got changed. Have either of you seen The Player? I have not. Nine. Okay, so the play the player is a, uh, star, stars Tim Robbins as a studio ex executive, and this this writer brings in this small film, and it's going to have a dark ending, and he buys it and basically changes it into a major blockbuster where the entire premise of the film gets rewritten completely to the reverse of what he was going for. And as he was describing how the started as an outhouse movie that was going to be anti-imperialist and got turned into its exact evil giant opposite i just thought oh that's kind of like what the player did with this movie within a movie yeah yeah, yeah. it really I did mean, it's also worth pointing out this is the same year that the the modern adaptation of 1984 came out oh the, yeah the british one right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. with uh with uh william hurt i believe yeah in the, the title the main role of nineteen eighty four. we are the dead and so in the same year as this movie which is Alex it puts it very aggressively and I think I think Alex you are correct but this is a very conservative movie in its presentation not only of war but how you would deal with the war uh, there is a film that is about like the exact opposite of like here is actually us criticizing totalitarian governments entirely uh in the same era in the same year I mean there's a lot that you could say about like the political position of this movie which is it is so much of its time that yes when they remade this movie in i want to say like 2011 it was 2012 it was 2012 because um if you look up red dawn one of the top search ter search terms is why does red dawn 2012 not make any sense well there's a reason <laughs> for it and that is in large part because in 1984 it, it would be obvious to anybody familiar with that time period that russia or what was then called the soviet union uh was not friends with the united states now to be fair it's not very much friends with us now but it's a little bit different to today yeah but at least it was it was cold war we were we were threatening to murder each other yeah yeah like, okay. not just murder uh nuke each other into oblivion yeah. i think would be the appropriate yeah, yeah. I mean, terminology like i'm gonna make fun of this movie a lot but it does exemplify a lot of the fears of the cold war which we have thankfully moved on past I agree. Yeah, and I and I think it stands out that when they remake this movie, it lacks any of the same kind of political messaging that this film has, which this film, it would be fair to say, is problematic in the messaging that it offers. But it is at least dealing with what was an actual legitimate fear, which was actual war with the Soviet Union, whereas like the idea that people in 2012 were deeply concerned about some sort of world war three scenario with North Korea is absolutely absurd. 
but there is, of course, a different political context for why that film exists, which is largely the cowardice on the part of Hollywood to just tell Chinese censors to go fuck themselves, which didn't necessarily exist in 1984. This film also is like super based in Reagan era conservatism. Oh, yeah. I, in some very distinct ways. And and if anyone's watched this and be like, but it's not really a conservative media, I just want you oh to know God. that the, uh, the, <laughs> the National Review considers it the 15th greatest conservative movie ever made. And, and that is because in large part, this is like, this film is literally like the mythos of like the, the idea of the revolutionary revolt against mass oppression by an evil enemy. And that is a deep conservative myth. That falls apart once you realize that, especially today, like a uh, conservative notion of collective action basically doesn't exist. And so the idea that a bunch of teenagers would work together collectively uh, to help fight against a massive invasion from a foreign enemy is so absurd just on its face in contemporary context. But in 1984, it was a thing that people thought would really happen. Yeah, well, I mean... This is like in the entire, I, I was watching it the whole time and I was like, this is a 3% or wet dream movie. Like, yes, it is. It, it is like every militia nutbag in Idaho. Probably they love it. There, There is literally y'all. If you've not seen this movie, there is literally a scene at the beginning when the invasion has been taken place where you see like a Chevy, I don't think it's a pickup truck. It's like an SUV or something, but it's got a bumper sticker on it that says like, they can have my gun when they take it from my cold dead hands. And they literally show a dead guy on the ground next to the truck holding a gun. Yep. And one of the soldiers comes over and takes the gun from his cold dead hands. I'm yep. not even The, the movie is joking. not s- subtle no, in any not. way. no. Yeah, arguably that may be one of its greatest faults is its total lack of any subtlety for a film that originally was intended as an anti-war film and then became like a conservative wet dream of a war film. Yeah, they, they apparently they decided they were like, oh, we want to make it like Rambo, but with teenagers. And I'm like, oh, yep. you are also missing the point of Rambo, but okay. Well, especially the first Rambo, which yeah. is like Rambo is a tragic figure in the first film precisely because... He has been like he's been used in an imperialistic effort on the part of the United States. And then he comes home and everyone shits on him and he just snaps because he's been in this situation doing horrible things for his country. Then he comes home and finds out his country hates him. It's like, oh, what the fuck am I supposed to do? And then he snaps and murders a bunch of uh, local police officers, which, you know. I'm pretty sure that Rambo fans just pretend the first Rambo movie never existed and they start with Rambo 2. Which is sad because Rambo, like, the first one is really good. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a 70 criticism of imperialism and what war does to people and, I mean, what we would now call PTSD and trauma and all sorts of things, yes. But I think it's just been excised from the Rambo mythos as, no, that didn't happen. Ram- Rambo just goes overseas and kicks butt. So I want to say, wasn't the first movie actually based on a novel? Which, Correct. Yeah. Because I want to say my best friend's read the novel and she was like, yeah, the first, the movie, which was brutal enough, was not even like as brutal and, and anti-war as the book. Apparently we're, we're, we're going to talk about Red Dawn more like it's, uh, you know, like a non-torture cinema. <laughs> well, there's a lot to say. There, there's a lot of interesting shit about this movie. Like, you guys could have given us Armageddon, and then I would just be, you know, talking about how fucking stupid it is that they decided to, what, send a bunch of roughnecks into space. But instead, you're going to hear us talking about, like, imperialism for an hour. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you, sorry. listeners. Thank you. Well, I mean, to be fair, like, this film is, it's an interesting film, and it is interesting in large part because of of how much it represents a particular era 
and the fact that you can't detach it from 1980s, like, you know, U.S. geopolitics, like, it, it's just impossible to detach it from that. And so that makes it interesting historically, even if there may, they are, and I suspect Alex would say this with much more aggressiveness, uh, deep flaws in the way that this movie is presented in almost every fashion. <sighs> the, the 1980s were a, a very rah, 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 West versus East time. I mean, the, the Cold War wasn't exactly turning hot, but the temperature was spiking. You know, this film sits with a lot of other films of that era of this sort of, we, we should just say, a very jingoistic, like, U.S. rah-rah, like, we're going to take care of this problem perspective. But that same era is the the one that gave us films like The Day After, which is the much more depressing interpretation of what happens in this film, which is, in fact, a nuclear war occurs in World War Three. right? There are entire cities that are nuked into oblivion. We don't see them in this movie. Day After shows us in explicit terms. And so I think there's like two pendulums going on at the same moment in the 80s. And, and also think about also think about War Games, which came out a couple years earlier, which is about trying to find peace because the stupid computer is going to kill us all. But the computer eventually figure, figures out that no... The, the only willing move move is not to play. So it's like yeah, there's a so yeah there's a there was a lot going on in the eighties as far as war and stuff going on in Afghan. I mean the, this movie mentions Afghanistan and that felt really weird. Well, because by then like, Afghanistan hadn't concluded. <laughs> well, I mean like well you know that the Afghanistan it's just. Uh, you know, as much as I hated BBC Sherlock, just the whole thing about like in the original Sherlock Holmes. John Watson is coming back from Afghanistan in BBC Sherlock Holmes. John Watson is coming back from <laughs> Afghanistan. And you're like, fuck. The Graveyard of Empires. We should get to likes and dislikes, though. And and given that I probably am the only one on here that actually likes this show, this movie. I, we'll I, start just, with I like likes. this show. I don't like this movie. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think we'll start with likes and end on dislikes because I think that'll that'll be more interesting. So with that in mind, Paul. Would you give us your your first and only like, please? Okay, so I'm I'm going to narrow it down. I mean, I could talk about the the prettiness of the scene, which I already said, but that's that's kind of glossing things over. I'm going I'm going to narrow it down to a particular incident, even though it's wrong in a, in a way, and I will explain. So uh, I think it's about midway through the movie, we get a couple of Russian soldiers officers basically touring the countryside and they come to a sign for the Arapo National Forest. Now, as Alex will know, the Arapo National Forest in real life is in like north north central Colorado, whereas this mo- whereas this movie is ostensibly set in southern Colorado, so it's the wrong forest. But that's not why I like this, even though that even, even though I could live with that. They could they could they could have they could have put the right national forest on the sign, but that's fine. These these Russians are basically acting as tourists and they're enjoying the sights and it's pretty country. And they get out and the the only one one of the Russians apparently speaks English and he's asked to translate what the science is. And the sign is just basically about this the Arapa National Forest set up in nineteen oh five, blah, blah, blah. He comes and spins this entire tale about the sign is about this Indian revolt in nineteen oh five against the imperialist Teddy Roosevelt and makes up this entire bullshit story that he sells to his comrades and it's charming. I don't know whether he's lies about whether he can read, but he he doesn't get Arapa right. Or he just decides 
what the hell? I'm just going to tell a fun story. They won't know the difference because they can't read English. And he spins off this entire fantastic tale. And I was charmed by that. And then they find the arrowhead and then wind up getting into a shootout with our Wolverine friends. But this whole little bit where they're posing in front of the sign and taking pictures and being tourists. And this guy's bullshitting about what the sign says. That little scene was was a was enough levity they would help me keep through this one because the movie is very serious about how bad bad the Russians and Cubans and Nicaraguans are. But here we are, they're bas- the Russians are basically acting as funny goofballs until they find the arrow and things go wrong. The, the scene amused me. It's like That was honestly my favorite scene in the entire movie too. I mean, the thing that, that really, that, that really, that scene, other than that it was just funny, really drove home to me is how different it is watching this movie in the year 2020 than, say, back in the 80s. Where, like, you know, when, when they're, they're calling, talking about Teddy Roosevelt and his imperialist army, current me is like, you, you say that like it's supposed to be a joke. And yet. <laughs> and you yet. Know, and yet. Yeah, I, I mean, because I recently went to Teddy Roosevelt National Park as part of my uh, Western journey. And the exhibits now and stuff are a little more nuanced than they used to be about who Teddy Roosevelt was and how he treated treated his presidency and things. I mean, so the culture has changed about thinking, the thing about Teddy Roosevelt and who and what he was. I mean, there's, they're thinking about taking the one of the statues in the American Museum of Natural History and changing some of the things he said in, on some of the walls. So Teddy Roosevelt has gone through a rethinking since this movie came out. It was a joking, like, well, you're making fun of Teddy Roosevelt, one of the greatest parents ever who's on Mount Rushmore. And now it's like, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't the unvarnished good. And I think we all can see that now. Yeah, there's there's like an element of that of like, like what Alex said is like, this is said as a joke, but in 1984, it probably plays as like, oh, look at how silly this is, how wrong he gets it. But the longer this film is behind us the more it's sort of like anybody who actually understands this history is just kind of trapped in this like but like even though he's making all of it up like he's actually kind of right right the only thing he gets wrong and what cracks me up is like they see the arrow and like his immediate reaction is oh my god it's a it's a native american arrow like oh they're all going like yeah because they had steel tips and plastic like sure but he's like oh you don't know what you're talking about it's totally true and it's like okay bro like like take the l on this one (laughs) yeah i i mean like it it was very it's it was just such a weird, like, time capsule of a movie in that way. And and, and in a way, like, thinking about it like that kind of helped me get through it. But I, the other thing was, you know, when they're in that, the, like, they they go to find um, Patrick Swayze's dad in the, the quote-unquote re-education camp. And the only, like, clear thing you hear them the, them say over the loudspeakers, I mean, it's a terrible place. And we know that re-education camps exist, etc. But the the thing that, you know, the Russians are saying is, like... You know, like, America is this garbage place where the ideals of your founders have been sold by by capitalist pigs on the street. And I'm like... Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And your point? (laughs) All right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, in that way, like, again, this movie is so much about the the time period of it. You know, it, it is so rooted in the like intellectual debate happening about the position of America in the 1980s. And the sad thing is, is we're somewhat still having that debate now 
about like whether or not we need to actually be considering the roots of of America's past in how we think about the future of this country. And, you know, because like you could see some of the same arguments being made now where someone's like, well, you know, look at the way that they package patriotism, you know, like literally after 9-11, like the example would be how quickly all these companies came out that sold like American flags and other American paraphernalia. You know, the idea that like you you had to get these because that's what made you really patriotic. I was like, well, but no, these are all opportunists. They're all making money off your patriotism. Like that that's all that exists for. They're not they're not they don't really give two shits about whether or not you're actually patriotic. It's all about like no, like this is an opportunistic time to make money off of your fear, which is not dissimilar than the 1980s which people absolutely were. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I do have two other facts of my fit here though that are fun that might tell us something about this era too that a lot of people today might not quite understand. Do you want to hear them? Go for it. There're two big ones. Uh one is that uh, there is a scene in this which I thought was really interesting to watch, which may actually be my like, so I may just do it, um, which is that there, there's a scene very like all, right at the beginning of the film when all the paratroopers are just falling out of the sky, right? And the, the history teacher or whatever he's oh, teaching. Oh, the, the thing with the Mongolian stuff, yeah. Yeah, so he's teaching all this stuff about like the Mongolians, about how the Mongolians work. And Paul will tell you at some other point that that's like really outdated information, but like whatever. But it's like a cool scene, like all these paratroopers are dropping and it's kind of a natural reaction of like, well, these people they just must be way off of their marker. Like, what are they doing? Like, it's just some sort of drill. And the teacher goes out and he gets shot. Well, it turns out, like obviously they they had real paratroopers or people that that could operate as paratroopers people who could f- jump out of an airplane and land but because as i'm sure paul knows that in terms of how paratrooping works and alex you might know this too uh you know things like weather affect paratrooping <laughs> yeah. yeah and so there is in fact a, a story about one of the paratroopers who got blown off course by a significant margin and when he landed he actually had to convince the locals that he wasn't a real invader because of the way he was dressed oh no (laughs) so he had to be like no i made a movie like this isn't real (laughs) (laughs) oh no and this is the thing that i think a lot of people today would not quite understand because we don't talk about paratrooping in the same way anymore i mean in in a lot of respect like we're not doing paratrooping like they did in world war ii it's just like a shoot you just jump out of a plane and hope you land where you're supposed to but in 1980s like that that was a thing like the russians were using paratrooping as part of their invasive vectors and the u.s was using it as a as a common tactic as well so it fits that that would be a thing that people might actually be afraid of as if if an invasion is going to happen paratrooping might be a part of it so fun fact that uh, that poor guy had a very interesting day. <laughs> the other fun fact has to do with the tanks in the film because they did in fact make uh, replica tanks of Russian tanks. And that created a problem because, uh, you know, 1984, as I'm sure both Paul and Alex know a little bit better than me, information did not travel as quickly as it does today. <laughs> and so uh, when they were ferrying this up, uh, to a set in order to use it, uh, this replica tank, uh, a couple of CIA operatives actually saw it and followed them and then oh asked my God. The, the set, like, where did you get these? And again, the poor people in charge of this had to explain, like, these aren't actually Russian tanks. <laughs> these are replicas we've made for a movie. Now, today it wouldn't happen, I think, because this would be just better controlled and there'd be better information. But 1984, like, the idea that the CIA, like, would be sitting around watching, like, yeah. So there you go. Fun facts. Fun facts. I mean, I was annoyed at some points where they call things that are not tanks tanks. There are tanks in this movie, but they call some APC tanks and 
friend of the podcast, Fred Kish, who is a former tank driver in the army, would bristle at the mention of an APC being called a tank. But that's very that's a sloppiness on the part of the of the dialogue writers. That's true. Yeah, this film's fun. But yeah, so my like, by the by the way, is in fact the opening paratrooping scene because I just like that whole framing of that. Like this movie doesn't, you know, dilly daddle. It's just like, no, <laughs> like invasion's happening. Like, let's just get to invasion it. Invasion now. <laughs> like, I think this film just does a good job of like, yes, it's very serious, but it in the way that immediately sets up its its premise, it just it has that opening dialogue that like t- you read and you go, oh, okay, like World War Three's happening, and then it's the, 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 just the opening titles. Yeah, the opening titles, which thankfully the movie does not read to us. Oh yeah. Well, Alex, what is your like? Go for it. So my like, since since Paul specifically picked that one scene, I'm gonna take the like of the landscape because as someone from Colorado, I love it every time there's something set in my state, and then I hate it because it never actually <laughs> looks like my state because it's normally for- filmed in like Vancouver. Like I will say, I actually really love Resident Alien. They they actually do a really good job for the most part of making it seem like Colorado, but it's filmed in Vancouver, so it's too green. Wait. So, so the thing is, you know, you, you think I'm going to drag this movie for being filmed in New Mexico, but the thing you need to understand is that northern New Mexico looks a, real, a lot like southern Colorado for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. So, like, geographically and how dry it was and all that, it looked great. And, you know, there were beautiful rocks and you know they're like okay they're so it, it like and the little town honestly looked like something down in fucking los animas county or something like i was really pretty jazzed with how the whole movie looked as far as the scenery and the landscape and the set dressing and just mm-hmm. all of it i was like yes you know i could totally believe that this is where they say it is because it, it looks like southern southwestern colorado specifically like the, the only thing that was a little weird to me is that they had where it looked like it was kind of um, out past the western slope, like way on the border where you weren't just in the mountains in the mountains and then you'd be suddenly in the mountains. So, yeah, they, they, they had some, some bits that seemed like a little too deserty. Yeah. For for for, 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 yeah, for even the drier parts of Colorado. I was like, yeah, that's and but for, southwestern Colorado is pretty fucking dry. Like Yeah, yes, the southern southwest California is dry, it's true. So I mean so I have like honestly no objections on that and I super enjoyed it and I was really happy. The only thing that pissed me off is when they were like the Arapaho National Forest and I'm like, that's <laughs> like, like fucking my backyard. Like <laughs> do some do some fucking research. Look at a map. You want the San Juan Forest. Yeah, it's one of those things where they could have fixed that by just having it be more accurate to the area that they're actually filming in. The movie is ostensibly set in a central Colorado pass. So that's why they went with Arapaho, because that forest is closer to where the movie is supposed to be set, even if it's filmed in uh, oh, northern see, New Mexico. Then I have to, like, spoil my like, because if it was supposed to be northern Colorado, no, that did not look like It was supposed to be more like central Colorado. I forgot that, because nah, it was like some sort of nah, t- no, that, town that's, that No, no, no. That was, like, south-southwestern Colorado. That's... Everything looked... Like, everything was perfect for that, so... Yeah, they kind of. No, it's more themselves. like South Central Colorado. I forgot the name of the town that's supposed to be. It's a fake town. It's, Who cares? It's a fake town. Oh, okay. So, so I found it. So the name, the name of the fictional town is Calumet, and it's kind of like supposed to be set where Calumet really is, which is kind of like near uh, Poncha Springs, near 
near uh, Monarch Pass. So that's where it's supposed to be set, which is more south central Colorado. So Arapaho's north of there. So that so I think that's why they went with the Arapaho rather than like say the Gunnison National Forest. The Gunnison National Forest would have been perfect because that would set that would have been a much better choice than the Arapaho. Yeah. They and they suck at football there. <laughs> yes. You know. You know, because that's important as an American pastime. Well, I, you know, I, I will say they, they, lost, they lost their game. Look, in the Western United States, in the small town, football is actually super important. That is correct. Yeah, <laughs> especially when you get closer to the South, like football takes on a whole other meaning. Oh yeah. Anyway, I liked the scenery. The scenery was really good. There were lots of rocks, and I like rocks. Oh, nice, nice. I can add a gentle, like ancillary, like that is. That that I feel like, in all fairness to this movie, I, I do want to say that I like that it wasn't entirely misogynist. Like, actually, there is a scene in the film when one of the shitty teenage boys, like, w- after they pick up two girls, which, I mean, there is a whole, like, gross sort of racist red scare. Like, oh, they the evil soldiers were going to despoil these two girls, so you need to take them and <laughs> yeah. protect them, which is just right. yucky. But anyway, once the girls are with the Wolverines... None of the boys are shit are shitty or weird to them. It's a it's a weirdly sexist sexless movie in in general. The the one time the boys are like one of them's like oh go wash my dishes and the girls like go fuck yourself. Yes. And and then the girls get to like murder people too and die gloriously and all that. So I was that I appreciated. Yeah, because if you look at the end credits of the movie, I mean the girls look as just as militaristic as the boys in those little shots of the of the yeah. characters. So they 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 look they're not damsel and just I mean once they're out of that that secret uh thing underneath the floor, they're not damsels in distress in any way, shape, or form. Well, I think it's interesting that so the, this film does take some supposed reference from World War II, which makes sense because there's apparently like a map at one point which shows 48 states instead of the full 50, which would be a reference to the time of World War II. And there's some production notes that suggest that they may have looked at like Hitler's plans to invade the U.S. or whatever. I don't know how true that is, but it did make me think that with the way that they, the women pr- participate in the guerrilla campaign that this film presents – Reminded me a lot of the Battle of Algiers, yeah. the movie, which does feature heavily women actually participating in guerrilla warfare, including a scene in which women participate in the bombing of, I believe in Battle of Algiers, it's a, it's a cafe. In this, it's kind of a cafe, but it's like the like like the the Russian Cuban. It's the Russian American friendship. Center. Yeah, like it's kind of a little bit more on the nose, but. There's that, and then there's obviously the scene where she bombs a tank at one point at a gas station when she's being hounded again in by. I think in that case it's supposed to be a Russian guy, but the implication yeah, he's supposed to be yeah. If the implication is, I think Alex is correct that like basically all the invading army are, are thought of as sexual threats. But it's interesting stuff like that very idea of a guerrilla war campaign. I think is also like very highlighting of the fact that the United States in 1984 is still very much bristling over the fact that it lost the Vietnam War, which it lost it in large part over <laughs> guerrilla campaigns. So I noticed you wrote on Twitter that your roommate friend, yeah, Karina, mentioned... yeah, because she was like, "Where where are the Vietnam vets?" Because you'd think. There would be, even in a small town in Colorado, there would be several Vietnam veterans and they they would presumably be the ones spearheading of this instead of a bunch of, you know, Lord of the Flies rejects, you know? But, but I suspect the reason why is because you, there, there's a little bit at the beginning because it's wrapped up with the whole 
weird politics this movie that they tell us like, sort of like oh yeah there's a list of people who have guns we're going to get them sort of thing it's very early in the movie so I, I think that's implied yeah people like the Vietnam vets were basically taken out quickly yeah though though it's again I'm, I'm like how the fuck do the Russians Nicaraguans and Cubans know who all the Vietnam vets in this tiny American town are what the fuck I mean it's it's a weird thing because on the one hand, this film wants us to believe two things simultaneously, which is it wants us to believe that the the adult population of the United States outside of the military is basically ineffectual and just gets like it's like a YA thing, like the adults are basically useless, right? And this film is taking that kind of like YA approach, which you see in a lot of YA, which which is that kids are effectively the responsible ones are the ones that have to take on all of the the physical action whereas the is adults, this a ya movie it effectively is effectively, i mean I think yeah it, it precedes when oh. the category i think existed for for i mean outside of like I mean, children's it, literature quote yeah unquote. it's a pj-13 movie oh mind blown it's yeah, a ya, it's a YA movie, movie. The, the entire story is centralized around teenagers I mean, I mean, Patrick says he was like 30 at the time well, when he's playing okay. a 18 year old. You're still. just describing the infinite problem with how every like YA movie is meant to be. Like literally everyone in the last Harry Potter movie are supposed to be like 17 or 18. And yet like almost all the actors are in their 20s. I, I mean, like, you know, look, look, every fucking, you know, like actor in the CW show Riverdale, which is nominally set in a high school. And they're all like hot mid 20s people. Yeah. I mean, it's like 90210, like fucking everybody. And that's like 35. Like, <laughs> so, so, like, this movie, Red Dawn, is a young adult narrative, and it follows a lot of the the common trends that you see in a lot of young adult, which is, like, the, the actual adults are ineffective or are taken out in some respect. In this case, they're all imprisoned, basically. Uh, and the teenagers are left to figure it out themselves. And when adults do show up to help them, they're largely just there to give them information or stuff. That's basically all they really exist for. With the one exception that there's a kind of creepy, weird, almost romance in this between what is clearly a teenager and like a 40 year old man. And I had read that there was that there was supposed to be a romance. There was supposed to be a romance there between Jennifer Grey and that down fire pile, but they cut it out. Yeah, they cut it out for the which, for the better. <laughs> for the better, yeah. Yeah, I because I, that would have really aged the movie even worse than it did Oof, if they had gone yeah. that way. Anyway. Well, yeah, especially since that we're still having the conversation about like age gaps between actors and and actresses in in film. And that one is a, it's a little bit grody. But yeah, just so like, I, I don't know. There's just a lot to think about with this film. It's an interesting film. The film itself is not that interesting. The context around the film is actually very interesting. Yeah, I think As that's a cultural ar- artifact. Because the film itself, I was just like, oh my God, I'm so bored. <laughs> well, this is crazy. So like, Alex, I don't know if you know this fact, but this film... At, at the time of its release, held the Guinness Book of World Records for the most violent acts in a movie. I could believe that because there is a lot of random shooting. I'm sure we've outdone it since then, but Oh yeah, yeah 100%. John Wick makes this film look like... You I, know, I mean, RoboCop came after this. <laughs> Not that RoboCop many years was later. Like yeah. All right. All right. It's time for dislikes. And so, Paul, I would like you to give me your one dislike. Get to it. Okay, so, I mean, although we've got Levin somewhat, as we've talked about before, there is a, a heck of a lot of toxic masculinity <laughs> in this movie. Woo! 
the whole scene between the father and the sons and it's like avenge me avenge it's me. like don't cry no more <laughs> don't cry no more you're not allowed to cry and patrick sweezy is is this turn it into it's something this else. sort of like i'm in charge and you're not gonna cry anymore you're gonna turn that you're gonna turn those tears into something else and it's like like this is how you turn people into psychopaths. This is how you turn, build a revolution. Or maybe it, you, this is how you build a revolution. So it says a lot of bad about. Like the one thing I found weird about that scene, because I was actually set to like drag it on Twitter when I was like bitching about this movie on Twitter. Because yeah, it was like the don't cry for me anymore. Don't you ever cry for me. And in it, but then it, like in the middle, they're like, I love you. And dad's like, I love you too, always. And I'm like, I've got whiplash. Yeah. And then that's, avenge, that's me! Avenge, avenge me! Avenge me! It, it, and the, the women do stand up for themselves. One of the two survivors of this movie, because the movie has a high body count, which which actually was my alternate like. The movie is willing to kill its darlings. It's like bros before... Uh, I, I think they even say <laughs> bros before, I think, at one point. It's like, what? No. I mean, yeah, what you're saying is co- correct. There's a lot of toxic masculinity oh, presented yeah. here and that precedes the war itself yeah the, 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 the whole way they talk about the football game and everything yeah else. because it's important and, you know you got to win the football but also game. give a slightly different alternate dislike maybe hopefully alex would say like that history teachers uh, lecture about how um the mongols uh, army worked is absolute and positive bullshit oh yeah they did not go spreading out in a Area sides of Rhode Island and bring things into a net and kill everybody and have the Khan's son be the last person to kill. That is absolute bullshit. That's not how. That's not how the Mongol armies did anything. I mean, I also did find it interesting that the bullshit history lesson was given by the the one black man in the entire small town. <laughs> right. yes. which, which I will admit right now, Southern Colorado is not known for being terribly racially diverse. Other than we have like it's a lot of white people and Latinos. And he summarily yeah. killed. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was instantly. I yeah. couldn't even think, like, are they trying to make a point about yeah. how the, how these paratroopers are trying to surround things? No. I was just like, no, he's just he's just spouting off random nonsense that I knew about the Mongols was wrong back in 1985, much less much less these high schoolers. Yeah, and it doesn't have a lot to do with their tactics. Later. Yeah, I was, I was waiting for that to, like, have some kind of meaning, and then it never did. It was weird. It would have made more sense if what they did was actually have a conversation about actual guerrilla war campaigns, because then that would tie into what they do later. Uh, now, now, maybe the original anti-war version actually probably went that way. Possibly. Maybe. And because, you know, we're, we're criticizing imperialism here, but now that we're talking about, yeah, it's like, yeah, America. Yeah, we had a switch in, so we're gonna switch in to, to lies, lies about the the Mongol army and how they uh, conducted a uh, military campaigns. Like, oh, good God! I mean, g- thankfully it's over, and we just get into the rest of the movie quickly. But it rankled because I like to make history correct. If you, if you, I think if I squint, they're looking at like, oh yes, the out the outside invasion. I mean, it's almost yellow perilous in some ways, but then they mention China's on our side. 600 million screaming Chinamen because there's a 400 million are dead. It's like, I, I can't figure out what they're going. It's like, I got we were, whiplash. It's like, who's the bad guys here, really? We were very, pu- like, China, when they were like, oh yeah, China's on our side. And we were like, really? I mean, I remember the 80s very differently. Yeah. Very, very differently. I wonder if it's they're trying to self-correct for like, 
like, oh, like Russia and like the Nicaraguans and the Cubans are all bad because they're commies. But like those those Chinese commies are kind of OK. That was what, <laughs> that's why I was very puzzled. I was like, but the Chinese communists. Oh, OK. It doesn't uh, quite make uh, sense, but I wonder if they're just trying to like complicate the narrative of like this isn't as simple as just the traditional Cold War narrative. And so we, we need to add like a kink in it, but not but not explain any of it in any I, way. I mean, there was a Russian-Chinese rivalry in communist circles for a long while, which is why we, Nixon tried to open up China. But this movie just does. So so why did why did Russia kill four hundred million? I, I mean, I don't know. Was the was the Chinese market a thing even then, where they were like, oh, maybe we'll uh, we'll get no, this it was China? not. Like I don't know. Yep. Yeah, let's 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 move on to the. Next uh, dislike, I think it's you, Alex. My dislike is the the total whiplash of this film, because you can see in it where it was supposed to be like a dark kind of anti-war film that was an examination of how fucked up everything was. And then that, where it keeps swinging between that and being like, you know, America, fuck yeah, let's blow up some tanks. <laughs> It was so weird. It was just very uneven. It was it was very strange to watch where it was you could just be like, well, I can tell they fucking rewrote this script. <laughs> like, I mean, you're not wrong that tonally this film is kind of all over the place. And I think that the biggest problem with that is it wants to be a super serious war film. But its basic concept is so stupid. It's a, it's an absurd concept. But like the the actual dialogue and the... The story oh, so that they bad. give is not great. That's not helped by, like, some of the actors are also not great. <laughs> like, oh, God, some of the, like, especially some of the teenage boys were just. Uh, I think that they want the action sequences to be really exciting, but they're just punctuated by a lot of drudgery. Yeah. That happens around it. Like, there are some interesting scenes that take away a, a place around a fireplace, but a lot of the conversation that takes place is like, there's nothing going on here. Like, this is not, eh. Like, that's kind of my reaction. It's just, eh. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I did, I will say that the, uh, the, uh, Ron O'Neill as, is he a Colonel, Colonel Bella? Yeah. I loved his character and just wanted more. He he was the most nuanced thing about this entire movie. He was a former, basically ran around with Castro and yeah. helped overthrow Cuba. And then and then he has that narrative where he's basically writing a letter to his wife and he misses, he misses things. He's like this high, cold, desolate place. Like he's a guy that got everything he wanted and found that it sucks to won the revolution and now being attacking the U.S. I'd rather be back in Cuba, damn it. When he respects the the revolutionaries the guerrillas that are the wolverines right he right because that's where it came from yeah he came from, he came from that that, that same perspective and it's a thing that like the other commanders that are they're all russian commanders don't understand is like you don't understand the guerrilla mindset and i actually kind of would have liked a nice back and forth of a but like there would have been a nice moment when actually the Wolverine, some of the Wolverines actually had to talk to him and have a conversation because that conversation would have been super nuanced. It would not be as a black and white conversation. It would be like them kind of having a mutual respect while still being on opposite sides of a war. And that would be super compelling, but they don't do that. And I think it's just they just didn't think that maybe we should have an interesting conversation because they want this to be very black and white. But then they have Bella in this and he's not a black and white character. 
Yeah. I Well, I mean, it, it again, that's like the bones of the old thing that was showing through. Because, like, the, the entire film, if they'd been interested in examining the sort of, you know, all the shit America was doing in Latin America and, and South America versus, like, you know, then we get invaded and have our own guerrilla war, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and, and, and kind of looking at the deep fucked upness of that. That could have been, like, an actual super interesting film, but I... Mm. Yeah, he says, we're invading you because you kept messing us for a hundred years. That would be a very interesting and very different movie to explore how American imperialism gets paid back in, back in full. Yeah, because you could still have a movie that's like, war is fucking awful. But, you know, you know, having nuance in there, but this is a movie that was not interested in any kind of nuance. Well, and that's, I think, the thing I would say is my dislike, which is that, you know, I, I like it. I actually like this film. I, I found a lot of it very enjoyable. It's not a film I would say I, I would go back to repeatedly over and over and over again, because I think a lot of it is very dull. But the thing that I dislike about this is is precisely that they removed a lot of the political messaging of its original version, which was meant to be much more of an anti-war film, including the figure of the downed fighter fighter pilot, who uh, is played by, uh, I believe, Powers Booth, Andy is the character, who is meant to be much more anti-war and much more nuanced. He was supposed to be the voice of reason in the conversation, and they reduced his character down to what we get in the movie, which features like a vague romance that's super creepy. And I think the problem of this film is that because it doesn't want to have a nuanced conversation, it wants us to be very hoorah, like, yeah, go for it, Wolverines, you're all the good guys. But sort of not giving enough attention to the fact that, like, these kinds of conflicts are horrifically devastating and awful and are things that we don't necessarily want to produce. Because let's be real, if you watch this film with any mindset other than 1984 conservatism, while you don't agree with invasion, you don't necessarily disagree with the reasons for that invasion to exist. Because the realities are that the U.S. Imperial Project in the 1980s is not on the right side of things. They've been fucking up all over in in Central and, and South America, fucking with all these governments, right? That There's all this stuff going. While the Soviet Union's not necessarily a bastion of love and happiness, uh, the realities are that politically, this film is ignoring that, like, fucking everybody is wrong. Nobody is doing the right thing. We're forcing teenagers into a fucked up situation. These kids didn't have anything to do with this. They, they didn't start this war. They didn't sit down and go like, yeah, let's invade Nicaragua. Like nobody was thinking these kids were like, I want to play football and get in my pickup truck and like have some brewskis on the weekend. And yet they've been sucked into this fucked up situation that the film doesn't want to actually address as a thing of like you're putting the burden of committing committing acts of war on a bunch of children who don't fully understand the context of what's happening and nobody is explaining it to them because everybody is so embedded in their ideology that it's it's no like you're they attacked america we got to be super patriotic kill everything it was part of the time in the mindset so i remember back remember omni magazine yeah i remember so 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 there was a speculative fiction article for lack of a better word back in back in around this time period where they described this basically this large terrorist attack against the United States, basically where they basically destroy a lot of uh, infrastructure, knock out power plants and things. And the solution that the guy su- suggests is basically, let's invade Nicaragua from both sides as retaliation. I remember reading a sign. It's like, wait, what? 
How does that fix the problems of of of, of these power plants and everything else being down? Baiting Nicaragua is your answer? Yeah, I mean, that's the innate conservatism of this film. This film is done with a conservative think tank. It takes a conservative interpretation of this event, and it basically avoids its responsibility to actually address the context of its situation. And while that makes it very interesting as a reflection of its time period, it makes it also a film that very much can only be read within its time period that you cannot take this seriously outside of that context because once you do it falls apart as a reflection of its period of time at least we can understand its historical relevance but it is not a film that makes sense without thinking of a 1980s mindset i think once you do that you just lose it don't get me wrong i like this film I think it's very interesting. I think I'm also very amused by the fact that a whole lot of people watched this movie and went, hey, let's use Red Dawn as a reference for things, including Operation Red Dawn in the I Iraq know. War. Oh, God. When I when I read that, I was just like, well, that shows you the place this movie has in the fucking conservative psyche. They didn't get the message of the film, which, to be fair, the film doesn't help them with. But the, this is not <laughs> meant to be a this isn't a happy story. All of the revolutionary characters die at the end, basically, with like a couple of exceptions. Well, but they're martyrs for America. They're martyrs for America. But, well, okay, we got we got to close out because we, we could talk about this film a lot more, but I want to make sure that we can get close because Alex will disappear on us and then we will all die. I, I will cease to exist. Yeah, correct. We can't have that happen. And so, uh, Alex, if you wouldn't, if you would, or wouldn't or would be so kind, <laughs> would you give me your short last thoughts and your grade, please? My short last thoughts are this movie was a wasted opportunity, but I, it's not like, oh, seeing it in 2020 means that it was a wasted opportunity because we can see all this context because the movie was originally conceived to be a completely different movie and it shows. And then, you know, someone from the Nixon administration who used to be in the Nixon administration got his little mitts on it and this is what happened. And now it's a little conservative militia wet dream, which is was just really bizarre to watch where you're just like do people actually think this oh god this is what you want yeah (laughs) like this is the dream you keep having about why you you need to have assault rifles because you think this is oh okay it was interesting as a trip back into the 80s to examine how the culture has shifted over the last almost 40 years god help us it was an interesting trip into the conservative psyche that i feel like i need to go wash my hands now i did not enjoy it as an experience um, other than seeing the rocks, because the rocks were really nice. Okay. <laughs> I mean, on the, on the grand scheme of torture cinema, this one was actually, I would almost say this was not a torture cinema film, because obviously, we, we even though we used the framework, we spent most of our time addressing it more like a movie that we watched in a serious fashion. True. So True. in that sense, I would actually give it a B, because it wasn't bad like most torture cinema movies are bad. It was just like icky (laughs) but in a very specific way fair all right fair enough a b for you all right paul last thoughts great go okay so so yeah so a lot what alex said interesting scenery lots of great rocks lots 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 of scenery even though the airport national forest is not where this was supposed to be set like colonel as a character the rest of the characters in this movie have no nuance or depth whatsoever rah 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 it was an interesting trip back in time to something i had not seen in a long long time or not thought about in a long long time about my own family's history and politics and whatnot so it was an interesting immersion into back into the 80s 
And it wasn't torture cinema. It wasn't a great movie. Do I want to watch this again anytime soon? No, I did watch this twice to make sure I understood. I I was prepared for this one, but I'm not going. I'm not going to be uh, liking this on HBO Max and watching it every week. That's for not. That's for sure. I'm going to stick with Alex, and I think I'm going to give it a B too. Awesome. All right. Well, as for myself, I like this movie. Weirdly enough, I'm going to grade it lower than on both of you, but I wow. liked it more than both of you. Wow. <laughs> that's that's wow. So we always shot Sean. That's weird. Yeah. So like. I, I like a lot of what this film does. I, I think, Alex, you're right on the money that we that it really is telling that we talked a lot about the legacy of this film and its periodization and what was going on around the film because this film is so interesting as a piece of it of, of American history. I like the the idea of of the film, even if the execution is not great. <laughs> a general feeling that this film doesn't quite know how to be what it is, which I think is really sad for someone who worked on Apocalypse Now, who should know better. With that in mind, I actually would give this a B minus. Yeah, so we average this to just a shade under a B. Yeah, it's like a B-ish. All right, we've done it. So thanks, it. everybody, for being here. Thank you, Paul and Alex, for coming on. As always, if you'd like to let us know what you thought about this film and what we had to say about it, if you want to let us know your likes and dislikes, skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions, the best way. You can also follow us on all of the socials. We are at Skiffy and Fanty on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. You can just look for the Skiffy and Fanty show there. And you can get our newsletter at skiffyandfanty.com slash newsletter. And finally, if you really like this show, we could use some love. So there are two ways you could do that. Patreon.com slash Skiffy helps us pay for hosting and makes me feel not so bad about all the hours I spend editing. And also five-star reviews on iTunes will help other people find the show. And if you can't do one of those that involves money, you can also scream about us on the socials and let people know that we exist. As for me, you can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter Grand Moff Duke, or Grand, no, Grand Admiral Duke on Instagram, uh, SeanDuke.net, or Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. Aren't you also on Twitch? Oh, and I'm Alphabet Streams on Twitch if you want to watch me play video games and get, you know, in trouble. And you can find me, Alex, at KatsuDonbury on Twitter, AlexAxe.com, or at Patreon.com slash AlexAxe, where I talk about TV, movies, and books. And you can find me at Prince Justin on Twitter, PrinceJustin.com, Patreon.com, that's some Prince Justin, and I write lots of reviews and things on blogs and podcasts like Tor.com, Nerds of the Feather, SFF Audio. I'm all over the internet. You throw a rock and you hit something I've done. Yep, and it's J-V-S-T-I-N, so instead of a U, it's a V. But otherwise, it's easy to find. Great. All right, now it's time for me to make it awkward, and so I just want you all to know that this episode was actually a recruitment meeting for what will now be the new militia group calling themselves the Wolverines! And uh, Alex and Paul are the inaugural... uh, members so congratulations all. yeah you would get a bubble gun at the end of this episode oh sweet yeah. okay um you're welcome citizens <laughs> Awkward ending. stay frosty and see
If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>